Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Simon Holmes, the lead fund manager of the BMO Sustainable Universal Map range. The three actively managed multi-asset funds, Cautious, Balanced and Growth, are part of Interactive Investor's quick start range for beginner investors. We have a total of six funds in the range. The other three are index funds managed by Vanguard. Following on from that interview, at the end of the podcast, Theodore Diloff will be running through one of Interactive Investor's rated fund choices. Firstly, as ever, joining me to talk through a couple of news items is Tom Bailey, ETFs editor at Interactive Investor. Tom, let's start off with the big news that was first reported in the Sunday Telegraph, Neil Woodford's return to fund management. As part of the interview, Woodford said he was sorry for his mistakes on the Woodford Equity Income Fund, but criticised administrators' link fund solutions for shutting the fund down. Tom, could you run through more of the details? Yeah, sure. So the Sunday Telegraph revealed that uh, Neil Woodford is, is planning to return to fund management. Um, so in the, in the exclusive interview with the newspaper, he announced that he'll be launching a new fund management company called Woodford Capital Management Partners, which obviously sounds very familiar. Um, and Woodford will be, again, uh, focusing on investing in the sort of small cap, early stage biotech stocks. Uh, however, it's important to stress that he won't be managing uh, retail investor money. Any of the new funds he's planning to launch will be run for professional investors only. Uh, and any other important thing to point out is that it's going to be based in, in, in Jersey, the island off the coast of the UK, which has a different regulator and the Jersey regulator has not uh, yet approved it. So uh, we'll have to wait and see what actually happens there. Though. Um, but of course, this is less than two years since his previous fund management company, Woodford Investment Management, uh, collapsed with, with several of the high profile funds. Uh, leaving many investors with steep losses. So obviously the news has caused a bit of an outcry among some. As you said, Woodford did address some of this in his interview. Um, he he criticised Link Fund Solutions again, um, who were the administrator of the funds. Um, he blamed them for shutting down the fund, um, saying he could have improved performance. Um, this was a criticism he made at the time when it when it was announced in 2019 that the funds were shutting down. Uh, however, as you do say, he did he did offer an apology at the same time to investors. It's not the first time that um, Woodford has apologised. In September 2017, he said sorry for a spell of underperformance, which ultimately was not turned around. At the time, he even responded to critics who asked whether he had lost it. At the time, he said, investors are free to believe I have lost it, but I don't believe I have lost it. I believe I have the right portfolio and the right strategy to deliver the right returns to our investors over the medium and long term. An apology is unusual in fund management. When a fund manager underperforms, they tend to hide and hope their investors haven't noticed. It is rare that the opposite plays out, and even rarer that as well as offering up an explanation for the spell of poor performance, there's also an apology. There have, however, been a small number of other fund managers that have over the years made a public apology. Anthony Bolton springs to mind, He apologised for underperformance when managing the Fidelity China Special Situations Investment Trust, a market he had not previously invested in until the trust launched. Tom DeBell, 
the former manager of the MNG Recovery Fund, also issued an apology for lagging the market. Performance did not improve, and last September it was announced that DeBell would step down from the fund and leave MNG at the end of 2020. Another example is Carl Stick, who manages the Rathbone Income Fund. In 2008, at the heights of the financial crisis, the fund fell by 34% over the year. He, of course, was not alone in losing money that year, but he does stand out in being one of the few fund managers who have spoken candidly about the mistakes made and vowed to learn from the experience. In short, Stick admitted too many of his holdings were highly leveraged and promised to take a more risk-based approach in future through buying quality businesses at the right price. Performance was turned around and on a 10-year view, the fund is up 96% versus 75% for the average fund in the Investment Association's UK equity income fund sector. Moving on from Woodford and other fund managers that have said sorry over the years, the other news item that caught my eye over the past week was one of the findings in a survey from 200 professional fund buyers. Tom, could you run through that for us? Yeah, so this was a, a survey carried out by uh, Core Data uh, in November and December of last year. Um, and it focused on attitudes towards ESG. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Broad idea, but basically ESG means funds kind of uh, have, a, have a framework which they integrate into their stock picking and to reduce kind of their exposure risk. So they consider environmental impacts of companies, um, social negative externalities of any business models that um, companies they invest in might have and the kind of risks that are associated with uh, regulation and then also how strong their governance is. So the, so the survey found that two-thirds of fund buyers believe that all funds will be ESG funds within five years, meaning they'll use some sort of ESG framework. Those in the UK were especially confident in this, so uh, 73% predicted the same. While in the US, fund buyers were a bit more sceptical, with uh, only 50% saying so. But the survey also showed that half of fund buyers said ESG funds tend to outperform non-ESG counterparts. 65% of UK fund buyers agreed to this. This definitely has been the case recently, um, particularly because the kind of the main reason really is ESG funds are more likely to be overweight tech, uh, which obviously has done very well, and underweight stuff like oil and mining, which has not done well. But it, it kind of it's a bit strange here because if, as uh, the survey suggests, professional fund buyers believe all funds will become ESG funds, ESG funds can't really continue to outperform for long. But I suppose what this kind of it comes to a real confusion that still is there about ESG. You know, is ESG a general framework or, or box ticking exercise that any fund can adopt, be it an oil or even a mining focused fund, or is it a specific form of stock picking that differs from the rest, provides a kind of specific type of exposure, which may or may not produce better returns? Just a final thought from me is that there's been a flurry of ESG fund launches over the past couple of years in response to greater investor demand. As a result of this, investors need to be on guard for potential greenwashing. This is a term coined to describe the situation when fund management firms push themselves or their funds as green through marketing, rather than fully integrating ESG and sustainability into their investment processes. Something that I think is very important to consider is the fund management group's knowledge and experience. Resource also fits into this. And on that front, 
If the fund firm employs a large team of ESG fund managers and analysts, this arguably shows a healthy level of commitment towards sustainable investing. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Simon Holmes, lead fund manager of the BMO Sustainable Universal Map range. The free actively managed multi-asset funds are endorsed by Interactive Investor as quick start funds for beginner investors. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Carl and everyone. It's a real pleasure to be on here with you. To start off, could you give listeners a brief run through of the BMO Sustainable Universal Map range, explaining how the cautious, balanced and growth funds differ from one another? I'm the lead manager on these BMO Sustainable Multi-Asset Funds, including the range that we'll talk about today. And I've been working in the industry since 1996. And I've been at BMO Global Asset Management since 2007, obviously working as part of the multi-asset team. The easiest thing for me is within the broad universal range, that's where the sustainable funds sit. And our broader universal multi-asset range was our response several years ago to seeing that investors were increasingly having to choose between passive products um, at lower fees or products that have active management, like active asset allocation or stock selection. But then those came with higher fees. And so we designed our, our broader universal range to deliver active management at passive prices across a whole range of funds with different risk targets. And we are hoping that makes it easy for people to find the right fund for them, for their risk appetite. And we launched that broader range in 2017. And we saw strong demand. So that range is at 750 million of assets. Now turning to the sustainable funds, almost as soon as we launched the first range, we could see growing interest in investing in a way that allows people to align what they invest in with their values. And at BMO, we've got a long heritage of responsible investment that goes back to 1984, when we had our first ethical equity fund. So we knew we could bring this into our multi-asset range and bring that to our investors. So in December 2019, we added these three sustainable funds to the range. And as you mentioned, they're called uh, the cautious, balanced and growth funds. And as their name suggests, they target different levels of risk. So to give you some idea, the cautious fund has currently got about 45% allocation to equities with the rest in fixed income. The balanced has an equity allocation of more around about 60%. And the growth fund has closer to 75%. Uh, And the first year has been really good. So we've had good performance, lots of interest. And now we're getting just up towards the the 100 million assets under management mark for those three sustainable funds alone. And you mentioned that the funds were launched in December 2019. How would you assess fund performance so far since then? I mean, I think it's an interesting time to ask that when we've had such a difficult year for everybody with the effects of trying to manage the COVID crisis and the response to that. It's a very different time to anything we've seen before. Uh, For our first year, we've been fortunate that we have seen good performance. Um, From the start of 2020 until our anniversary date of the 9th of December, they returned 12% in the cautious fund and 14% roughly in the other two. Uh, And if you look over the first full year, so from launch, until the one-year anniversary date, they returned 13%, 15%, and 15.5%. And that means that the funds came right at the top of the, the entire risk-targeted sector. 
clearly we're happy about that. It's, it's good to see them performing well. But actually, what's when you try and assess the, the performance within that, we were pleased to see that we got contributions to that from both the security selection, the underlying companies, and also active asset allocation, so changing our allocation to equities. Uh, we reduced that somewhat before COVID really started to hit, and we were able to increase that again later. Um, and again, looking at other asset classes like fixed income. So, so we think it's gone pretty well. And of the three funds that were launched in December 2019, over the longer term of three to five years, should investors expect the growth fund to be the best performer, followed by balanced and then cautious? I would expect that. I think if you're looking at short time frames, then it very much depends on what events you see. And there were certainly periods if we'd had this conversation uh, halfway through last year, when the cautious fund would have been ahead because it had less equity, so less risky asset exposure. But once you extend the time frame that like you have there in the question to three to five years, you'd expect to see that the riskier asset class of equities will actually perform much better. And so the fund, as you already pointed out, with growth, with the, with the larger allocation to that, would be what we'd expect to see as the best performing fund out of the three. But clearly that comes with additional levels of risk. Um, so the movements you get when markets turn more pessimistic or if there's an economic shock, they would take more of that negative move as well. But the longer out the time frame, the more you can be comfortable that the larger equity allocation will lead to better returns. I wanted to move on to how the funds are managed according to BMO's Invest, Avoid, Improve framework which includes a focus on sustainability, impact investing, ESG factors, and exclusions. In a recent report by BMO, it was stated that over the past year, BMO has engaged with 58 companies. Firstly, could you explain how you engage your companies and then also provide a couple of examples of how you made a positive difference? As you mentioned, Kyle, we use a framework that we basically summarise as avoid, invest and improve. The avoid is really, we want to avoid harm by excluding companies that focus on tobacco, weapons and fossil fuels, or companies that follow unsustainable business practices. So we just won't invest in those. And we will invest in a, a companies around themes that we think align well with a sustainable future. So often that's healthcare, uh, again, very relevant for last year, it could be renewable energy, technology, all sorts of things like that, among other things. Um, and then we want to improve the companies that we invest in by engaging with them, which is really getting to your question. So what, what this means is, is talking to company management on specific areas where we think they could improve their approach from a, a sustainability perspective, for example, and then working with them over time to set specific targets. Each year, we set several areas that we, as a firm, we focus on in particular. So for example, in uh, 2020, we focused on climate change, labour practices and public health. And this year, we will continue to focus on climate change and we'll add in some parts of human rights and biodiversity. And this gives us a, a whole set of things we can go and talk to companies about. It's not the only thing that we'll bring in. So we would react if we saw something specific uh, happen with a company that we're talking to. But it, it gives a good framework to give some idea what that means. So to take the example of labour issues. Uh, we may talk to management or write to them and request that they become a living wage employer. Or we will ask companies with long supply chains, particularly overseas, to examine their supply chain 
the risks of things like modern slavery, where employees are forced to work at very low wage levels. And another example, uh, again, relating to the environment, we encourage companies to incorporate net zero emissions targets into their sustainability strategies, looking at everything that they do and setting out a plan over time to be able to bring the emissions that they're generating down uh, and ideally to a, to a level of, of zero. And secondly, the report also said that 37 milestones were recorded over the past year. These are instances where a company changes its practices following active engagement. Could you go into more detail regarding what is meant by milestones and also a couple of examples of companies in which you influenced positive change? Yes, so um, this is how we measure and record our engagement impact. We set objectives that we want our investee companies to achieve over a certain period of time on a specific ESG topic and we'll then engage with them along these lines and we'll monitor what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're committing to. And when we can see that either there has been some detectable change or or announcements made, commitments made, we record these as milestones for the companies. And it really gives us a good way to track over time. Here's how many companies we've engaged on. And here are the milestones or specific outcomes that um, have been achieved. And we can see how we're doing. To give a couple of examples here, one of the companies we own is GlaxoSmithKline. It's a large pharmaceutical company, and and clearly from an invest perspective, they're well aligned with a healthcare theme, but they have received some negative attention on executive pay, particularly in pension contributions. And partly that, I think, is them competing with other global pharmaceutical companies. But but we care also how that looks here and, and how they compare within the UK. And so they consulted with investors, and we were an active part of that. And following that, they've agreed to align the pension contributions of their top executives with those of the rest of the workforce by 2023. Um, so that's one example. Another example is Smurfit Kappa. So this is a, a big company that specializes in paper-based packaging. So when you look ahead and think about all the things that are in the shops that we buy in plastic packaging, this firm, Smurfit Kappa, is very well placed to provide sustainable alternatives to that, to the plastic packaging. That's just going to make a huge difference. But They're a large industrial firm, so they use significant amounts of energy and water. Last year, following some engagement from us and others, Smurfit Kappa committed to set science-based targets for how much of this energy and water they're going to use, bringing that down. And they're also going to report in line with recommendations from the recent task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Uh, And by doing those two things, that brings them into line with best practice within their industry, which is always what we're looking at as a a good guideline for what we want our companies to do. I'd just like to make a final point on on the whole topic here about transparency. So, you know, we invest in companies, we work with them like we've talked about, but we think it's really important for our end investors to be able to see what's going on, not just the returns, but but all of these these parts about how much good has been done. So when we when we set out our policy, like the Avoid Invest Improve one, that's provided in detail on our website. Um, we have regular fund reports and an annual impact report, which gives all this detail on the engagement themes and these metrics, such as uh, CO2 emissions or resource use, uh, or again, workforce diversity of the companies that we hold in the portfolio. Uh, and we really hope that by providing this, this deeper transparency, 
investors in the funds can be really comfortable about exactly what they own and what good their capital is doing at the end of the day. So, I mean, thank you for running through the BMO Sustainable Universal Map range and explaining to listeners how you influence positive change among the companies that you invest in. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. For the final part of the podcast, I'm joined by Theodore Diloff, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor, who'll be running through one of Interactive Investor's rated fund choices. Theodore, what have you chosen? Today, I'd like to focus on Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund, which aims to provide investors with exposure to high-quality dividend-paying companies based in the Asia-Pacific region. So since its launch in 2013, the strategy has been run by Edmund Harris, who has over 25 years of experience in the sector and is supported by the co-manager, Mark Hammonds. By focusing on individual company fundamentals rather than the broader macro picture, the managers try to identify high-quality companies that have recently fallen out of favor, but have previously demonstrated the ability to navigate through the full market cycle. Stock selection is based on three key characteristics, quality, value, and dividends. The process focuses on profitable businesses that have generated sustainable and high returns. In addition, companies whose shares trade below their fair value and businesses that can sustainably grow their dividends in the future are potential candidates for inclusion. The managers believe that strong cash generation and distribution of dividends could also provide a degree of downside protection against volatility in domestic markets. And what does the fund invest in? The fund is run on a high conviction basis of 36 equally weighted stocks and pays little attention to a specific benchmark or market index. In terms of market cap, the managers would consider companies with a minimum market capitalization of $500 million and generally aim for lower portfolio turnover rate. The process also adopts a strict one-in-one-out investment policy, which provides a good balance between the benefits of lower correlation while allowing each company to potentially add value to a reasonable performance. Currently, the fund has around a third of its assets invested in China, 21% in Taiwan, and around 11% in Australia. From a sector perspective, the portfolio has 24% exposure to financials, 22% in information technology, and around 21% in consumer discretionary. Some of the holdings include companies like Singapore's first and largest industrial real estate investment trust, Ascenders, Australian retail JP Hi-Fi, and the multinational Taiwan Semiconductor. And what, in your opinion, makes the fund special? The fund operates in a rather specialist area of the market, as Asia-Pacific is not the typical hunting ground for income investors. Its unique approach of investing in a concentrated portfolio while having no constraints on a sector or geography level provides investors with quality income generated through a number of diversified channels. It should also be highlighted that the fund managed to generate a positive return of around 5% in 2020, despite the extremely unfavorable market environment, while at the same time keeping its dividend yield above the market average of over 3.5%. And finally, what sort of investors do you think this fund will particularly suit? Guinness Asian Equity Income Fund features on the Super 60 rated list as an Asian Equity Income option. Run by an experienced management team, it offers exposure to high-quality dividend-paying companies in the Asia-Pacific region. The fund has produced consistent total returns since inception, and its yield may look attractive for investors with stricter income requirements. 
However, its high portfolio concentration makes the strategy a high-risk one, so it may be best utilized as a satellite holding within a well-diversified portfolio. That's all for this episode. Thank you to all my guests, including Simon Holmes, the legal manager of the BMO Sustainable Universal Map Range. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find loads more investment ideas and insights at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in early March. <laughs>